Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the fall of Valyrian. Rob, can you catch us up? Of course, if you haven't heard part one yet, you should go back and, and listen to that first. But uh, if you, assuming you have, Rob, can you do a brief refresher? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll refresh everybody on the basics here. So when are we? Well, we are during, we, this is all taking place during the crisis of the third century. Uh, this was a period between 235 and 284 CE in which uh, the Roman Empire is facing all sorts of internal uh, problems just about falling apart, lots of uh, of warfare between different would-be emperors. Uh, there's, near, there's almost an emperor every year during this period. Uh, meanwhile, in, in Persia, we have the, the, the strong and united Sasanian Empire. And so, uh, in the last episode, we talked about the uh, background, especially on the Sasanian Empire, uh, background on how Rome reaches the state, why it's in such crisis, and who some of the major players are, and what some of the short imperial reigns consisted of. Uh, and so, the, the key conflict, though, that the episode revolved around was, on one side, uh, the Roman Empire under Emperor Valerian. And then on the other side, the Sasanian Empire under Shapur I. 
And so we talked about the Battle of Edessa. We talked about this, this enormous military disaster in which not only are Valerian's forces defeated, but Valerian himself, the emperor of Rome, is dethroned and captured by enemy forces. He, he is a prisoner of war under the Sasanians. And so this was, this was ultimately you know, what drew me into, into this whole uh, topic here. Like, what are the ramifications of such a defeat? Because again, while this does not compare to say the complete taking of a kingdom or the destruction of its capital, the enslavement of a people, that sort of thing, it's still an unthinkable occurrence in many respects because the emperor is the very apex of the imperium. And now here he is in the hands of the enemy. So for starters, yes, uh, one is no longer emperor if one is in enemy hands. So instantly, once Valerian is, is captured, the title of Roman emperor immediately passes on to his son, uh, Gallienus. Gallienus was already essentially co-emperor with his father, and in 260, he becomes sole emperor. And ultimately, he's going to reign till 268, uh, eight-year reign. Uh, then he is assassinated. Uh, the disaster of 260 greatly undermined him, and he almost immediately had to deal with other usurpers within the Roman ranks. Now, on the other side of things, on the Sasanian side of things, this, of course, is a most momentous occasion. And uh, Shabur I uh, has it commemorated in rock relief, uh, I think in more than one spot uh, that survives. Uh, one of the, the key ones is this place called Nakshirustam. Uh, it shows two R Roman emperors subjugated by a, a figure mounted on horseback that is uh, uh, supposed to be uh, Sabur I. So the two emperors here are supposed to be Valerian, who of course has just been captured. Uh, also Philip the Arab, the soldier emperor of Rome, who followed the slain Gordian. This is the guy who signed a treaty with uh, the Sasanians. And uh, there's another rock relief elsewhere that also shows Valerian bowing before the Sasanian king. Now, one of the sources that I uh, uh, re referred to a lot in the previous episode is uh, Toraj Dari, uh, who wrote this wonderful book about the Sasanians. Uh, go back and, um, and listen to that episode uh, uh, for, for a full citation on that source. And he's referring here to uh, Shapur I, Quote, no other person before could have claimed that he was able to kill a Roman emperor, make one a tributary, and capture and imprison a third. Sapur was very much aware of this feat and did not hesitate to mention it in his inscription. And uh, ultimately, he also ends up commemorating this victory in his biography as well. Um, now, you'll remember the idea that he killed a Roman emperor. Uh, that is maybe a beefed up claim. Uh, the emperor in question uh, may have just been killed by his own uh, soldiers, which was, of course, a common fate for Roman emperors during this time of great unrest. Now, here we get into another really contested aspect of all of this, uh, perhaps like, the most contested aspect of the whole scenario, and that is... What then exactly happens to Valerian? Uh, you know, we, we know that he's not emperor anymore. He is a prisoner of war. Uh, but, but then what does that mean? What, what is going to happen to uh, a supreme ruler 
in enemy hands during this time. And uh, we have various accounts of what happened. Uh, what happened. We know, uh, for instance, uh, 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 Derry says that the Iranian sources say that he and some senators and soldiers were deported uh, into uh, Sasanian territory. But we don't really know for sure what happened. But the accounts range from the mundane uh, to the horrific. And all told, none of it is truly out of the question during this time period. I guess one big question we might ask is just like, what was standard treatment during the day for a captured ruler of uh, an enemy group? And in fact, we might well look to the Romans for such an example. Oh, yeah, sure. Because so the export of a defeated ruler to the victorious metropole of the, the rival empire uh, would not at all have been an unheard of concept in ancient Rome. Uh, as soon as we started talking about the subject, a couple of examples came immediately to my mind. These are by no means the only examples, but these are the first ones I thought of. Uh, one is fictional and the other historical. So the fictional example is a scene in William Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus, which now, uh, to be clear, this is not like Shakespeare's other Roman plays like mm -hmm. Julius Caesar. Those are based on real historical events, at least to some extent, or events that were believed at Shakespeare's time to be real historical events. Titus Andronicus is wholly a fictional scenario, but individual elements from it and scenes in it are based on scenarios that really did happen. And the one I'm thinking of is the very beginning of the play. And so in uh, a scene in Act One, Titus, the title character, is a Roman general. He's returning to Rome after a long war of conquest against the Goths, and with him he brings prisoners that he is parading through the streets, including Tamara, the queen of the Goths. And then uh, a little bit uh, further down, Lucius says, Give us the proudest prisoner of the Goths, that we may hew his limbs, and on a pile admanis fratrum sacrifice his flesh before this earthly prison of their bones, that so the shadows be not unappeased, nor we disturbed with prodigies on earth. Uh, and then later, uh, Tamara herself, the queen of the Goths, says, Stay, Roman brethren, gracious conqueror, victorious Titus, rue the tears I shed, a mother's tears in passion for her son. And if thy sons were ever dear to thee, O oh, think my son to be as dear to me. Sufficeth not that we are brought to Rome to beautify thy triumphs and return, captive to thee and to thy Roman yoke, but must my sons be slaughtered in the streets for valiant doings in their country? cause? Oh, if to fight for king and commonweal were piety in thine, it is in these. Andronicus, stain not thy tomb with blood. Wilt thou draw near the nature of the gods? Draw near them then in being merciful. Sweet mercy is nobility's true badge. Thrice noble Titus, spare my firstborn son. So the scenario is the this is the queen of the defeated enemy nation that Rome has conquered. She is brought back with her sons, and they are going to to do a human sacrifice of her captive son back here in Rome. And she's pleading with Titus, don't do it. Please don't do it. But they're going to do it. Again, not, not a story or an account uh, directly from the time that we're talking about here, not from the Romans. This is Shakespeare. But still, uh, it, it paints a, it, both a grim picture of what uh, may have been the standard, but also, at least from in Shakespeare's voice, uh, it, it's asking questions about, like, is this really the way we should handle things with when it comes to uh, captives? Uh, is this really the way to go? 
of, of course, as the, the morality of Roman practices is highly questionable to us today, I would say even so is the implied morality of, of, uh, of the play where, I don't know, so Tamara eventually becomes the villain, right? Or, I don't know, I guess it's kind of hard to say within a, within a, tra- a hyper-violent tragedy and revenge mm-hmm. story like Titus Andronicus, but she eventually becomes the wife of the emperor, Saturninus, and then they end up uh it's it, oh it's a whole big battle there there's a lot of yeah. like uh, slaughtering sons and feeding them to people but but but, but to, to bring it to real history i think clearly this scene in shakespeare is based on real historical events uh one example that came to my mind immediately is the story of Vercingetorix, who was originally a nobleman of the arverni tribe of the gauls uh so in the 50s bce Julius Caesar uh, was engaged in a number of campaigns that came to be known as the Gallic Wars. It was a war, basically a war of conquest in Gaul, which uh, Gaul is an area of Western Europe that roughly corresponds to modern-day France. And uh, it's complicated, but basically the aim of these wars was to bring the various tribes of the region under Roman domination. Now, this is before Caesar was an emperor. Uh, At the time, he was... um, I, th- I believe he was governor of Gaul, but uh, but he was, he was he was a military commander, and he was practicing a form of divide and rule, showing uh, favor on some Gallic tribes and nobles in order to play them against the other Gallic tribes and nobles. And uh, I think it is it's alleged that earlier in this effort, Vercingetorix, this one particular uh, Gallic noble, had been on relatively good terms with Rome and with Caesar, but. Sometime later in the campaign, Vercingetorix did a U-turn, and he ended up mounting an effort to unite the Gallic tribes in brotherhood to say, okay, let's stop squabbling with each other. We can't let them divide and rule us. we got to band together and fight back. Now, I know that initially under Vercingetorix, the Gauls were actually pretty effective at uh, resisting Roman conquest. Uh, Vercingetorix apparently employed a a sort of harass and deprive strategy. So Mm. uh, kind of uh, having, having quick moving troops uh, uh, moving around and and, uh, harassing the Roman column, and then also practicing scorched earth tactics to deprive the Romans of food and other supplies. So, you know, the Romans normally what they would do is they would move into an area and then they would confiscate food and, and other important supplies from the locals in order to feed their army. Uh, Vercingetorix said, okay, no, what we're going to do is just like burn and destroy and remove all of the food in whatever area the Romans are about to move into so they can't feed themselves. Mm -hmm. And this actually was a very smart tactic. But ultimately, uh, the Gauls were defeated. Caesar surrounded and besieged uh, Vercingetorix and and his uh, forces at a battle called the Battle of Alesia in 52 BCE. And facing certain defeat, Vercingetorix made a bid for mercy, a bid for mercy for his troops by surrendering himself personally to Caesar. And this story is told in the work of the second and third century Roman historian uh, Cassius Dio, I think also sometimes called Dio Cassius. And it, uh, Dio Cassius writes as follows. Now, Vercingetorix might have escaped, for he had not been captured and was unwounded, 
But he hoped, since he had once been on friendly terms with Caesar, that he might obtain pardon from him. So he came to him without any announcement by Herald, but appeared before him suddenly, as Caesar was seated on the tribunal, and threw some who were uh, present into alarm, for he was very tall to begin with, and in his armor he made an extremely imposing figure. When quiet had been restored, he uttered not a word, but fell upon his knees, with hands clasped in an attitude of supplication. This inspired many with pity at remembrance of his former fortune, and at the distressing state in which he now appeared. But Caesar reproached him in this very matter on which he most relied for his safety, and by setting over against his claim of former friendship his recent opposition, showed his offense to have been the more grievous. Therefore he did not pity him even at the time, but immediately confined him in bonds and later, after sending him to his triumph, put him to death. Mm. And then I, I think after this event, Caesar basically slaughtered everybody. The, the, uh, the Roman behavior in the Gallic Wars was extremely brutal. Now, coming back to what Diocassius says at the end of that passage, that he was sent to Rome uh, for, for Caesar's triumph, and then he was eventually put to death. Apparently what happened is he, he was sent to Rome where he was held in prison uh, for about five or six years before being ritually executed after he was displayed to the public in Caesar's Four Triumphs in 46 BCE. Uh, the Four Triumphs, it was a kind of victory parade and festival celebrating the conquest of the various nations who had come under Rome's heel. Uh, to read from Diocassius in a different section describing the Four Triumphs, quote, after this, he conducted the whole festival in a brilliant manner, as was fitting in honor of victories so many and so decisive. He celebrated triumphs for the Gauls, for Egypt, for Pharnaces, and for Juba in four sections on four separate days. Most of it, of course, delighted the spectators, but the sight of Arsinoe of Egypt, and Arsinoe was... Um, was a queen of the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt, and uh, that, that dynasty was unseated by Julius Caesar around 47 BCE. Um, but uh, to continue the quote saying of uh, Arsinoe, uh, whom he led among the captives and the host of lictors and the symbols of triumph taken from the citizens who had fallen in Africa displeased them exceedingly. The lictors, on account of their numbers, appeared to them a most offensive multitude, since never before had they beheld so many at one time. And the sight of Arsinoe, a woman and one considered a queen in chains, a spectacle which had never yet been seen, at least in Rome, aroused very very great pity, uh, and with this as an excuse, they lamented their private misfortunes. She, to be sure, was released out of consideration for her brothers, but others, including Vercingetorix, were put to death. And I don't know what the source on this following detail is, but it seems like most historians uh, agree that the way Vercingetorix was put to death was uh, by garroting, a kind of ritual strangulation, in, I believe in a temple. Um, but this seems to be a ritual well known to the Romans that like a leader of a subjugated nation would sometimes be brought back to Rome as a kind of souvenir of the returning conqueror's power and then put on public display in some fashion, probably sort of humiliated. And then after that, it seems their fates were varied. Some were put to death. Others were 
given a more merciful fate of some kind to maybe released or kept imprisoned though i believe it, it's it's interesting that in that passage uh Diocassius says that arsinoe was released i think other historians write that after years of being imprisoned in a temple arsinoe was executed on orders of mark antony allegedly at the behest of cleopatra but that again that's one of those things that you, you wonder if that's historically true or if that's just somebody who's like mad at antony and cleopatra trying to make them look bad Right, right. There's certainly plenty of that to go around. Uh, by the way, uh, this episode with uh, Vercingetorix was depicted in the HBO series Rome. I'd kind of forgotten about this, but once you, uh, you went through the description, uh, I had to look it up. I was like, yes, yes, that was depicted at one point in that series. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. So what did they, what did they do to him? And like, did they, they strangle him in the temple? Did they put him on parade? Uh, they either, I think they might, it's been a long time since I've seen this, this show uh -huh. and I'm not in a big hurry to watch it again, but, um, though it has a wonderful cast, uh, mm -hmm. I believe they have him depicted strangled perhaps in, in a cage in the street or mm -hmm. on the steps of, of a temple. But again, my memory on this is foggy. So I don't know if this is true, but it, it seems like a common received interpretation that Vercingetorix was, was put to death here because he turned on Caesar and humiliated Caesar's forces in battle that, you know, because he had been very successful in stopping them early on, uh, that th this led to him being treated especially harshly. But in general, Roman leaders were very cruel, very brutal, uh, very into domination and had a low tolerance for being embarrassed. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, so that leads us back to Valerian. Uh, and certainly, it doesn't, doesn't look great for him at this point, based on, on what we've covered thus far. Uh, for starters, he certainly died in captivity. There's no version of the history here in which he escapes that fate. Um, I guess it should be noted, as far as I know, there, was, there are no surviving accounts that he escaped that fate. And I guess there's no... There was no like real reason. There was no real faction that had an interest in pushing that fiction, um, you know, the, in, in which that version of uh, of history served some purpose or another. Uh, but we'll get in, you know we'll get more into that. But you might re- remember in our past episode we talked about like how how was the defeat at the Battle of Edessa framed? How are the particulars of that defeat passed down? And you know a lot of times it's about uh, from the the Christian perspective it's about saying Valerian was punished by God because he uh, was cruel to Christians back home and had a, a pope uh, put to death. Uh, and then from the Roman standpoint it's a, it's about pushing the idea that well he was weak and the Sasanians were deceptive. Uh, and and therefore sort of excuse the loss to some extent. But as we said earlier, there's a there, there's a lot of leeway in how we might actually interpret his death and in how the, the, the various histories have mentioned the death of Valerian in Sasanian hands. Since we're already talking about the horrific side of things, let's stick with the horrific side of things, and then we'll come back to the more mundane possibilities towards the end as kind of a palate cleanser, I guess. 
So, according to early Christian writer and Christian apologist uh, Lactantius, who lived 250 through 325, um, things were pretty grim for Valerian. And we have to mention, though, that uh, the thing about Lactantius is he has a, a whole axe to grind here on the survival of Christianity, and he wrote an entire work titled On the Death of Persecutors, uh, in which he writes the following about Valerian. And this is, of course, a, a translation here. And presently, Valerian also, in a mood alike frantic, lifted up his impious hands to assault God, and although his time was short, shed much righteous blood. But God punished him in a new and extraordinary manner, that it might be a lesson to future ages that the adversaries of heaven always receive the just recompense of their inequities. He, having been made prisoner by the Persians, lost not only that power which he had exercised without moderation, but also the liberty of which he had deprived others, and he wasted the remainder of his days in the vilest condition of slavery. For Sapur, the king of the Persians, uh, who had made him prisoner, whenever he chose to get into his carriage or to mount on horseback, commanded the Roman to stoop and present his back. Then setting his foot on the shoulders of Valerian, he said with a smile of reproach, Quote, this is true, and not what the Romans delineate on board or plaster, unquote. And just to pause right there, I love how in this account, Lactantius has, uh, the, has the, the king of the Sasanians here basically turn to the reader and say, this is 100% true, I'm not making this up. Don't believe those Romans. <laughs> That's good. Uh, anyway, Lactantius continues here. Valerian lived for a considerable time under the well-merited insults of his conqueror, so that the Roman name remained long the scoff and derision of the barbarians, and this also was added to the severity of his punishment, that although he had an emperor for his son, he found no one to revenge his captivity, and most abject and servile state. Neither indeed was he ever demanded back afterward. When he had finished this shameful life under so great dishonor, he was flayed, and his skin, stripped from the flesh, was dyed with vermilion, and placed in the temple of the gods of the barbarians, that the remembrance of a triumph so signal might be perpetuated, and that this spectacle might always be exhibited to our ambassadors as an admonition of the Romans, that beholding the spoils of their captived emperor in a Persian temple, they should not place too great confidence in their own strength. Okay, so it gets very Clive Barker at the end here. Yeah. And they say that uh, that after uh, after his torment is ended, which again, Lactantius is saying, totally justified. Uh, we don't know if if what he's saying here has any basis in fact, but he's claiming that this he got his comeuppance for, for being a persecutor of Christians. And when it was all done, his skin was removed from his body, was dyed red, and then was placed in the temple of the, the gods of the barbarians. Right, right. Pretty horrendous. And, and again, I do love how he has uh, Sabur basically break the fourth wall and say, hey, Christians, this is the real story. Don't believe what anyone else tells you, thus acknowledging that there are other accounts of what happened. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was reading a little bit more about this. I found a, a source here. This was published in Classical Quarterly in 2006 from Erica Reiner titled The Redling of Valerian. And according to Reiner, uh, Reiner writes that uh, the Lactantius account is by far the most detailed and the most disputed. 
and she she shares and weighs in on some of the other claims that come about to in some cases add more uh, more more details uh, to this particular account. Uh, she points out that only a single account, that of Agathias, who lived 530 through 582, says that Valerian was flayed alive. Uh, this is a, this is the only account where that extra detail is added, almost in like a, a sort of like I can't just retell that story. I've got to I got to make it a little grislier, and so there's an upping of the ante here. Uh, later, some commentators, including Constantine. Um, add the detail that, and then, well, this is sort of a detail, I guess, uh, that he was embalmed, that Valerian was embalmed, um, that, uh, that there's some, uh, you know, attempt to preserve the body. So it's interesting, I guess, if we're getting uh, info about, the, not info, claims about this from Constantine, is Constantine trying to add on, like, jump on the, the bandwagon of, like, here's how Valerian got what he deserved, because Constantine was, of course, the first Christian Roman emperor. I mean, it basically falls, yeah, it basically has to do with this, with the whole role that Valerian has uh, after his fall in uh, Christian uh, power, in the, the view of Christian um, oppression uh, in the past. Uh, so, yeah, like he remains a coin that may be, uh, uh, you know, cashed in uh, from time to time in speeches and so forth. Now, another account, this was from Peter the Patrician, who lived 500 through 565. Uh, this, this kind of uh, backs up the whole idea of, of the skin having been preserved. Uh, uh, Peter writes, quote, Even after death, with loathsome art, you kept his skin and inflicted an undying insult on his dead body. But then Reiner gets into questioning this whole thing about the, the red dying of the skin. Uh, because this instantly stands out. Like, it's one thing, okay, we can understand flaying, uh, you know, horrific, but there are other accounts in history of things like this uh, occurring, um, and it continues to echo through our fantastic fiction and our, you know, grisly entertainments. But then the dying of it red, what does that mean? Like, what, is there something lost in translation? Is there some sort of a, uh, is, is something, you know, strange picked up in the telling of this tale? Uh, Reiner mentions that there is at least one theory that uh, this account of red-dyed hides refers to Valerian having to set aside his purple robes and wear the hide of a mere beast, like a donkey or something, in captivity, and this might have been dyed purple in mockery. But then again, we're talking about purple in this case, and it seems like all these other accounts we're looking at, we're definitely talking about the color red, so... However, Reiner does point out that as outrageous and fabricated as these accounts of the flaying may very well be, they're also not altogether out of keeping with the ancient world. And in fact, Sargon II of Assyria, who reigned 721 through 705 BCE, is said to have inflicted such a fate on his enemies. By his own recorded word, he boasted of having defeated kings flayed and their skins dyed red as red wool. And Reiner discusses this for a bit, you know, asking questions about the sort of the linguistics of the matter, uh, you know, red as blood, red as sunset, red as the horizon, and it, is, it has remained a mystery. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. It is such a strange claim, uh, the, this idea that uh, the, the, the flayed hide was dyed red. But Rob, you found an interesting little letter to a classics journal called uh, Nimosign, uh, that's a journal published by Brill, which addresses this question of w- what this could be a reference to. If it's not just literally the skin being dyed red, could this have another meaning? And I thought this was so interesting. So the letter was by a classics professor based in Ireland named David Woods, and the letter was called Lactantius Valerian and Halophilic Bacteria. Here's that science angle that we've been we've been mentioning. 
So Wood says, you know, there's really no clear explanation why Shabur would have dyed the skin of Valyrian red. He acknowledges Reiner's thoughts regarding the flaying tradition, but then says there's another possible explanation, and it goes like this. If Shabur actually wanted to keep the the skin of the emperor as a permanent trophy of his victory rather than something that would just sort of rot away, he would, of course, have to preserve it somehow. And the standard way of preserving a hide at that time would be by curing. This assumption is given weight by a statement of, uh, again, the later Roman emperor Constantine, who mentions that Shabur had ordered Valerian skin to be not only flayed, but preserved. I think this comes back to what you said earlier about Constantine making the claim that, uh, that he was embalmed. Woods writes that the verb Constantine uses here for preserve in this context is the same word used for the preservation of fish at the time, which could refer to preservation by salting, pickling, or smoking. And generally, if you were going to cure a hide in the ancient world, this would have involved salt. You would use lots of salt. Uh, Now, Woods cites a couple of scholars named Vreeland and Hochstein to point out that sometimes the salt curing of a hide would be compromised if the product was contaminated with a halophilic bacteria, halophilic meaning salt-loving, bacteria that can survive in extremely salty environments. Apparently, these bacteria are well-known pests in the leather industry, and they produce a side effect called red heat, just like Mm. the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Um, (laughs) And it's called that because the byproduct of the presence of these microorganisms is the reddening of surfaces that they colonize. In fact, if you've ever seen a salt lake turn red, this is caused by the same strains of halophilic microorganisms. Uh, Rob, I attached one picture for you to look at in our outline here. This is a photo I found of the Great Salt Lake in Utah, taken in 1999, and it's taken at a place where the lake is divided by a railroad causeway. On one half of the causeway, the water looks like normal water. It's kind of blue-green. And then mm-hmm. on the other half, the water is bright red. Yeah, indeed. Uh, bright red, almost almost leaning a little bit towards purple almost, but definitely uh, you get this this reddish vibe from it. Yeah. So I went to double check this. I was looking, okay, leather industry sources. Uh, I wanted to see about halophilic bacterial contamination there. And it looks like, yes, this absolutely is in fact a problem in the the leather industry. I found an article on how to prevent it, or at least uh, addressing the, the signs of it on a trade website called Leather International. I think this is some kind of leather trade magazine. I don't know. But the article is just called Putrefaction. <laughs> To read from it here, they write, quote, Sometimes, even when hides have been well salted or brined, bacteria can still grow. These are a particular type of bacteria which are halophilic or salt-loving and are commonly colored red or purple, affecting hides that are said to have red heat. Under normal storage conditions for raw hides or skins, red and purple heat bacteria take a relatively long time to grow, around two to three months. Therefore, their presence is an indication that the hides or skins have been in storage for some time. However, at higher temperatures, around 30 to 40 degrees Celsius, growth will be more rapid. The warm, humid conditions favored by red heat bacteria are also favored by other non-colored spoilage bacteria. So if salt levels are not high enough, putrefactive bacteria may also be present. 
It was once thought that red heat bacteria caused no harm to the hide, but it is now known that some types of bacteria do produce proteolytic enzymes, which are capable of damaging collagen. Proteolytic enzymes, I think, would be um, enzymes that dissolve proteins. Hmm. Now, this article also offers preventative measures to, to keep away putrefactive bacteria, the kind of bacteria that would cause leather to actually rot. But they say you know, for red heat, there, there are not really as many things you can do. I guess maybe it's harder to keep out. Um, but anyway, I kept looking more into the idea of these red halophiles, these salt-loving bacteria. And one interesting thing I found is that while many older sources, including the ones I was just looking at, refer to red halophiles as bacteria, it seems that most of the prominent examples of, of red-colored halophiles are actually now classified as archaea. Hmm. Now, archaea are very similar to bacteria in many ways. They're both lineages of single-celled organisms without a true nuclear membrane, but they're distinct from each other. They split off from one another extremely early in the history of life on Earth, probably something like 4 billion years ago. And there are some common structural differences between them, even though they're, they're both single-celled organisms. For in, in a lot of ways, archaea are just sometimes referred to as a type of bacteria. Um, but yeah, they're, they're these different clades. And uh, some of the structural differences that are found between them are, have to do with things like cell walls and membranes, like the chemical characteristics of the lipids in their cell membranes are different. Uh, but another common feature relevant to this discussion is that archaea are most often found in extreme environments that are less friendly to other Earth life. So archaea are abundant in extremely hot environments, such as around deep sea vents or hot springs, uh, or deep underground in low oxygen, high pressure geological deposits, like around fossil fuel deposits, mm -hmm. or in extremely chemically unfriendly environments, such as the various salt hells of the world. Now, I was curious why there would be a tendency for the microbes that battle for life in these salt hells to be red in color, uh, and I found a paper that at least identifies a common biochemical factor. So, uh, this paper was by uh, Aharon Oren and Francisco Rodriguez Valera, published in uh, FEMS Microbiology Ecology in 2001, called The Contribution of Halophilic Bacteria to the Red Coloration of Saltern Crystallizer Ponds. So in this uh, article, the authors start by looking at uh, natural hypersaline environments like salt lakes, but also at human-constructed environments like these saltern crystallizer pools. A saltern is essentially a factory for harvesting sea salt. And in the old school process, what you do is you leave a bunch of seawater out in these pools and you leave it under the hot sun so the water content can evaporate, leaving crystallized sodium chloride behind and you can harvest it. Uh, Rob, again, I attached some pictures for you to look at. These pools are often kind of arranged in these big reflective rectangles out by mm -hmm. the ocean side. And an interesting thing is that if you look up pictures of saltern pools, occasionally you will find that they are red in color. And I was reading another paper that claimed that uh, testing of the microbial communities in solar saltern pools usually reveals that there's very little microbial diversity. Uh, they tend to be dominated almost entirely by halophilic archaea, like we were just talking about. But halophilic archaea are not the only things in there. Uh, so to read from a section of Orin et al., the, the paper I referenced a minute ago, quote, 
two types of carotenoid-rich microorganisms have generally been implicated in causing the red coloration. You've got halophilic archaea of the family Halobacteriaceae and the unicellular green alga Dunaliella salina. The main pigments of the uh, Halobacteriaceae are C50 carotenoids, mainly alpha-bacteria ruberin and derivatives, while uh, Dunaliella accumulates massive amounts of beta-carotene under suitable conditions. The relative contributions of red archaea and beta-carotene-rich Dunaliella cells to the coloration of saltine crystallizer ponds have been studied in the past. Beta-carotene was often found in quantities greatly exceeding the archaeal bacteria ruberins. Uh, in spite of this, the optical properties of the saltern brines were determined primarily by the archaeal community. This apparent discrepancy was explained by the extremely small in vivo optical cross-section of the beta-carotene in Dunaliella cells. As the carotenoid is densely packed in granules within the algal chloroplast, the presence of even large amounts of this pigment may contribute much less to the overall red color than the archaeal pigments which are distributed evenly on the cell membrane. And the study also did find a small presence of halophilic bacteria in some salterns, but not others. Like it found uh, uh, actual halophilic bacteria of a type called uh, salinibacter that was present in the, uh, crist uh, in the crystallizer ponds that were sampled from California, but not the ones that were sampled from Israel. Mm. Uh, so it seems there's some geographic uh, variation there. But ultimately, they say, yes, to create this red color, the most important components are these extremophile archaea, the salt-loving archaea. And I thought it was interesting that what's causing the red color here are these carotenoids, which are present, of course, throughout all different kinds of life. Uh, if you eat red or orange-colored vegetables or fruits, uh, those red and orange, orange colors are generally going to be a result of carotenoid pigments. And, uh, and of course, you know, when you eat a red carrot, uh, you, you, people talk about carrots being a good source of vitamin A, which they are, but what's actually happening metabolically there is you're eating them and they contain these red orange pigments, uh, the carotenoids, which then through your metabolism are turned into vitamin A. So if Wood's idea is correct, that actually what this, you know, this dying red of the, uh, uh, of the, the hide of Emperor Valerian, if that is actually some ancient commentator looking at the skin, seeing it's red, and then mistaking it being colonized by halophilic archaea <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, for it being dyed red on purpose, then what's causing that red color is probably part of the same family of pigment compounds, the carotenoids that make your carrots r red or orange. Fascinating. So, so yeah, it seems very uh, biologically possible that you could have an attempt to preserve the, a hide like this, uh, a flayed skin of a human being, and then lo and behold, it ends up taking on this red color, which ultimately makes me really potentially feel for this. Um, this, I don't know, this hide worker that's suddenly called in one day to the palace and, uh, you, and you find out you have a particular task ahead of you. You need to preserve the skin and then it ends up turning red. Uh, like, how do, you, how do you spin that? How do you sell that? <laughs> you uh, know, I, I meant to do that. <laughs> yes. Or uh, yeah, your majesty. Um, might this look better if it were red? Think about it. Think, think about all the connotations of the, of the color. Um, 
really, really get him on board with this, make it think it was his idea before presenting him with this hide that uh, ended up turning this color on you. Right. So anyway, that's what Wood, Woods argues in this letter, that maybe the ancient reports are mistaken. It was not actually dyed red. Schubert didn't do that on purpose. Instead, somehow tried to cure it with salt, and then it was colonized by halophilic bacteria, or actually more likely halophilic archaea, causing the red heat phenomenon that's been known to the leather industry actually since ancient times. Woods writes, quote, The importance of this discovery is that it confirms that the ultimate source of lactantious information in this matter must have seen Valerian skin firsthand. He then made the understandable but erroneous assumption that Shibur had ordered the skin to be dyed red. A humble leather producer would not have made such a mistake, but few diplomats, ancient or modern, have a background in the leather industry. <laughs> now, I think that's all pretty well put, except I don't think I agree that it confirms Lactantius's source would have seen it firsthand, but I, I'd agree it makes it more likely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um uh, and uh, and again, uh, on one hand, we have of course the older account from Sargon that that you know reminds us that such uh, horrendous things did occur uh, in the ancient world, and uh, and then uh, this is something that Reiner gets into a little bit as well, you know, pointing out that okay, we have we have these two alleged incidents of flaying and the reddening of a of a skin, but they occur about a thousand years apart. Um, but Reiner contends that either perhaps there is some truth to the Lactantius account, uh, or perhaps there's this kind of cultural memory of Sargon's deeds. Uh, ultimately, I think you could spin this as, see this as like kind of a trope about the evil things that Eastern kings do to defeated emperors. Um, uh, there's you know some memory of, well, so Sargon did this, and then it gets sort of wrapped into the account. If you need perhaps something horrible to happen to Valerian in your history to, again, prop up the, the idea that, that God has punished Valerian, then perhaps you draw in this historical detail and it becomes part of your story. Now, on the more mundane side of things, we do have some, some other accounts. Uh, there's the, uh, the writer Eutropius, who was writing between 364 and 378, and he contended that, quote, Valerian, while he was occupied in a war in Mesopotamia, was overthrown by Shapur, king of Persia, and being soon after made, a, made prisoner, grew old in ignominious slavery among the Parthians. So in that account, it's like basically, well, they took him away, they locked him up, and yeah, he just, he died there. Uh, he was already, by you know, by many accounts, uh, an older man. He was in his sixties, and uh, yeah, how long is he going to live in captivity, uh, in enemy captivity? Now, Toraj Dari also uh, gets in on this and seems to side with this interpretation as well. Uh, that that he, the Valerian, and some of his men were sent back uh, into Sasanian uh, territory, into uh, Bishapur in modern Iran. Uh, where one of the, the carved reliefs there show him kneeling before the mounted king, uh, and this area would become known as Valerian's prison. And I also can't help but wonder, this is just me here, this isn't anything any of these authors were discussing, but again, we have these rock reliefs showing Valerian bowing, uh, Roman emperors bowing before uh, the, the king of the Sasanians who is mounted on horseback. I wonder if if it's possible that you could have a situation where there's like some sort of misunderstanding of the visuals here that lead to the idea of him being a footstool to mount a horse. I don't know. Hmm. 
Anyway, there's not really any consensus on when Valerian dies in captivity. It may have been the same year, so sometimes you see him listed as having lived till 260. Uh, he might have been executed more or less immediately or within that year. Uh, other times you see a date of 264 mentioned, saying that he lived about four years in enemy captivity before he either dies of some natural causes, is just sort of uh, re- removed, or some more extravagant means of execution. Uh, either way, yeah, you tend to see 260 or 264. Uh, so, yeah, he might have just lived out the rest of his life in prison. Uh, he may have been made a mockery of. He may have been tortured to death or flayed following a, a quicker execution. And, uh, of course, the different versions of the tale, again, they kind of fulfill different needs, both in the turbulent years following the Battle of Edessa, but also for years to follow. So it, we almost end up in this kind of quantum state where where anything, uh, any of these accounts seem possible, you know, uh, and, and ultimately we'll never know what actually became of Emperor Valerian. Now, here's a possibility you probably haven't considered. What if he was uh, fully externally colonized by halophilic archaea before he died? Hmm. So he was already red? Maybe he's just rubbing salt on his skin all day long and I don't know, it's getting in there. Hmm. I, I'm not okay. sure. Or here's another possibility. Uh, Maybe Valerian removes his own skin, then escapes, and has someone else wear that skin after he he has left. You know, kind of does a little uh, Hannibal Lecter thing there. Or reverse Hannibal Lecter. It's like face-off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be like face-off, except it's, it's like whole skin off. Next Nicolas Cage role playing Valerian. You know, in, in thinking about these accounts of rulers being treated, in some cases horrifically, or in, in other cases, perhaps, you know, more politely, uh, but generally horrifically by, by these various rulers, I was reminded of, a, I kept being reminded of this line in Dune uh, in the novel. Uh, th- this is a, depicting a scene that is in the recent part one film that came out, uh, though this exact line of dialogue I don't think is present. But basically, the Harkonnens have moved against the Atreides, and we have that scene where the Baron has uh, Leto uh, Atreides captive. And in the book, there's this bit of dialogue that goes like this, quote, This is not a child's game we play, the Baron rumbled. You must know that. He leaned toward Leto, studying the face. It pained the Baron that this could not be handled privately, just between the two of them. To have others see royalty in such straits, it sets a bad example. And I kept thinking about that because so many, especially on the Roman side, I mean, you have these, these emperors these absolute rulers whose position is actually rather precarious and and death is never that far away and the the shadow of of uprising and dethronement you know is is always present in the mind of any ruler even one who enjoys a, a rather secure reign uh you know it's it, it's a um take uh, Adashir the first, you know, he, he was able to retire and, uh, and die a natural death, but he didn't do that by not keeping an eye out for all those who tried to, to rise up against him. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me think of, uh, about that, like in, and I guess you get into some of that Shakespearean morality as well, like, uh, the mistreatment of, of other rulers, like there, there has to be this moment where you realize like this, this could easily be me. And what kind of example do we continue to set for those around us who may one day be the ones to rise up against us? Uh, and it's, it's an interesting moment in, 
in Herbert's Dune as well, because you know, obviously the the Baron uh, Harkonnen or or, or, or Harkonnen uh, to be more um, uh, authentic here, you know, he he's not he doesn't feel any actual mercy towards Leto, but it's the idea that well, the lesser people, the commoners, the soldiers, they shouldn't see this between us. Like there there's this, uh, and and of course in in the world of Dune, you know, the, these uh, great houses are are connected in various ways as well. All right. Well, uh, I guess we're going to go ahead and close this out here, but uh, I greatly enjoyed uh, this uh, examination of, uh, of history and histories uh, concerning the fall of Emperor Valerian. Um, I, uh, I, I apologize if I messed up any pronunciations in this. We had to, to, to juggle uh, 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 two different tongues here, uh, and uh, I, I hope that I didn't get anything wrong. I tried, tried to make sure I hit the pronunciations correctly. There are a lot of names today. We, we I think you did good. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, that uh, Taraj Dari, that book is Sasanian Iran, 224 through 651 uh, AD, Portrait of a Late Antique Empire from Mazda Publishers. It came out in 2008. Uh, it, it's a really good read. I, I recommend it for anyone who's interested in this time period and this particular dynastic um, uh, rule. Uh, it's it's a, not, a very, not a very thick book, very readable, has some, uh, some nice illustrations and maps in it. All right. Well, we're going to, yeah, we're going to go and close the book here on Old Emperor Valerian, but we'd love to hear from everybody out there. If you have any thoughts on on the histories at play here, if, if perhaps we have some folks out there who have some experience uh, preserving hides and leather and so forth, and perhaps you can weigh in on this uh, reddening that we've discussed. Uh, and uh, hey, let us know if there, there are other episodes in history you'd like us to cover. I don't know, maybe there's some, some other dethroned emperors of note uh, in the history books that would make for a good episode. Uh, let us know. In the meantime, you'll find core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do short form artifact or monster fact episodes. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just focus on a weird film. And you'll find all of this in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 